Hello, my friends. Today, I'm going to take you through a 34-page document that the liberals say does not exist, but I know it exists because I have it, and we got it from the government, and it's a briefing note for Justin Trudeau. Well, why would they say it doesn't exist? Because the very first words in this document are World Economic Forum Great Reset. It's a 34-page briefing note for Trudeau on the World Economic Forum Great Reset which I was told by liberals is a conspiracy theory that doesn't exist. Well, I'll read to you from the briefing note for Trudeau on this conspiracy theory. It's very interesting. That's ahead. But before I get to it, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. It's useful because I'm going to show you literally page by page what's in this 34-page note. Now, you can get it on our website. We're going to post it under this video. But I want to show it to you. I want to sort of read through it with you. Obviously, you can hear me on the audio podcast, but I'd love for you to see the document. That's the video version of the show we call Rebel News Plus. Go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. Gives you access to my show every weeknight, plus four other shows on a weekly basis. And the eight bucks a month, it might not seem like a ton of dough to you, but you know, enough people give us eight bucks a month, and that's how we can run this business without having to go cap in hand like Trudeau, to Trudeau like the other media does. RebelNewsPlus.com. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, is the Great Reset really a conspiracy theory? Well, I'll show you 34 pages of briefing notes for Trudeau about it. It's June 24th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. It's so funny. There's this phenomenon, this list of things that are happening that's outrageous. And the phenomenon is that if you agree with the outrageous thing, then you can talk about it. But if you disagree with that outrageous thing, well, you're not allowed to talk about it. And to talk about it, that well, you're called a conspiracy theorist. As in, your disagreement will not be heard on its own terms. The reason you disagree with it will not be addressed. There will be no rebuttal to your points. The very fact that you claim it's a thing will be ridiculed. The other day I showed you, for example, uh, a new opinion poll by the liberal-linked Abacus Data Pollster, they called their poll, Millions Believe in Conspiracy Theories in Canada. But like I say, it's more properly called Millions Disagree with Certain Decisions Being Made About Their Life. Here's what I mean. Look at their World Economic Forum question that they surveyed Canadians about. Do you believe the World Economic Forum elites have a secret strategy to impose on the world? 20% of Canadians say yes, 37% aren't sure. Well, let me help you with that. Here's Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, talking about imposing his strategy on the world. What we are very proud of now is the young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, um, President of, Brazil, of uh, Argentina and so on, is that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I 
have no set half of this cabinet or even more half of uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world yeah so you can't really call it a conspiracy theory because it is indeed a conspiracy they are conspiring to do it but it's out in public so it's more of a conspiracy fact one of the conspirators just happens to be christia freeland george soros's former biographer now our deputy prime minister who bizarrely sits on the world economics forums board of governors how's that even allowed like i say it's not really a conspiracy theory when they publish it on their website but if you disagree with it, it suddenly becomes a conspiracy theory the world economic forum is the organization the great reset is their plan klaus schwab published a book called the great reset they have a whole section about the Great Reset on their website. Uh, let me read a little bit from it. They say, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Professor Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman, World Economic Forum. Follow insights on how we can recover from COVID-19 to build a healthier, more equitable, and more prosperous future. So there it is, the Great Reset, using COVID as the excuse to rebuild and reshape the world and when they say healthier, of course, they mean vaccine mandates. When they say more equitable, of course, they mean socialism, but a weird kind of crony socialism, really not much different from crony capitalism, where oligarchs like Bill Gates and other World Economic Forum tycoon are in charge. I mean, once you notice their language and their plans, you can't really unsee it. I mean, take a look at this. A global pandemic. Joe Biden calls it Build Back Better. Build back better. Building back better. To do things differently. To build back better. We're going to build it back better. And build it back better. It's my plan to build back better. Uh, start taking all the problems that have been created in right. education and mental health and start to, to build back in a positive way. I have launched a booklet called Build Back Better. Britain after coronavirus. It's about building this country back better. Growing conspiracy following it. It is called the Great Reset. An unprecedented opportunity to rethink and reset the ways in which we live. The great opportunity for reset. The theory even calls Mr. Biden's campaign slogan, Build Back Better, a front for the conspiracy. Build back better. Building back better our economy. Build back better. All elements of the Great Reset are fundamental to building the future we need. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. It's a big effort to, some would say, to build back, back better. We would say to really have a great reset. Conspiracy, conspiracy. Conspiracy. Yeah, but I'd like to show you something interesting, and I'll post a full copy of this document on our website under this video. It's an access to information document, 34 pages long, of briefing notes prepared for the prime minister, prepared for Justin Trudeau. All about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. So this isn't some internet gossip, and it's not even Klaus Schwab just bragging about his claimed penetration 
into the Canadian government. I mean, theoretically, that could just be BS by Klaus Schwab, just some guy trying to pretend he's more powerful than he really is. No, this is what's actually going on inside our government. This is the department preparing briefing notes for cabinet ministers, in this case, Justin Trudeau, telling him what the plan is, telling him information, telling him things he should say, telling him what his role is in the World Economic Forum strategy. Let me say that again. These are internal Canadian government documents prepared by the Canadian Civil Service for Trudeau and his staff, telling them about the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, outlining what Canada is supposed to do, and facilitating that, making it happen, making meetings happen, making statements happen, making commitments happen, spending money. Or as Klaus Schwab would say, they're penetrating us. There's a lot in here. I mean, biographies of the World Economic Forum, insiders, Goldman Sachs is in there, Google is in there. Plans for speeches and meetings. See the whole document for yourself, really. It's 34 pages long. Um, it's underneath this video. But I want to focus on this master memo. This is not a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy. That's different. I'll read it to you now. This is from the year 2020, when Klaus Schwab realized that he could turn COVID into an opportunity to take over so much more of the world's governance. Background. This is a memo to Trudeau. Background. Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, WEF, has invited the prime minister to join the launch on June 3rd of the Great Reset Initiative, bringing together his royal highness, the Prince of Wales Sustainable Markets Initiative with the forum's multi-stakeholder network. The aim of the program is to have a discussion that would continue throughout the year with the objective of developing a clear set of principles, strategies, and practical solutions for delivering a Build Back Better agenda in line with the 2030 Agenda of the Sustainable Development Goals and Paris Climate Agreement, Outcomes of the initiative may be presented at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos in 2021. I mean, I really could stop here, couldn't I? I mean, it is all right there. In a memo to the Prime Minister, the World Economic Fund, the Great Reset, Klaus Schwab, uh, nothing about democracy or voting or listening to citizens. They talk about stakeholders. Uh, that's what they call the oligarchs and masters of the universe who pay thousands, sometimes millions of dollars to be part of Schwab's private club, stakeholders, not even shareholders, and certainly not even voters or citizens. They have no role in shaping the future. <laughs> it's for the oligarchs, your masters. Build back better, that's their thing. Sustainable development, that's their thing. Global warming, Paris Agreement, that's the cover for the whole thing. I mean, you don't hate the climate, do you? then you'd better obey Herr Schwab. So after that introduction, the bureaucrat's note to Trudeau uh, is clear in its intentions to show to Trudeau that the government has been busy complying with this new world order. Let me read. Canada has forged new alliances, including the Ministerial Coordination Group on COVID-19, and has reinforced existing partnerships. Canada has been active in multilateral forums, including the UN, G7, G20, WTO, and through our memberships in the World Bank, IMF, and Paris Club. None of these are democratic. None of these are Canadian, are they? 
So Klaus Schwab's great reset is being carried out by Canadian bureaucrats. Here's how the briefing note to the prime minister put it. Six work streams were established as a result of this event within which international organizations, member states, the private sector, and think tanks will be asked to develop concrete solutions for how best to provide immediate support to developing countries and to building back better for more resilient economies over the long term. Hang on, globalist groups, okay, private think tanks, private companies like Amazon or Microsoft? What, what about the Canadian Parliament? Is that simply not a part of how decisions are being made in Canada these days? I'll continue reading. The work streams are global liquidity and financial stability, debt vulnerability, private sector creditors engagement, external finance and remittances for inclusive growth, illicit financial flows, recovering better for sustainability and inclusion. Canada and Jamaica will be expected to help facilitate the forward momentum of the groups. Three sets of milestones have been set to sustain momentum. End July, possible financial ministerial meeting during the high-level political forum. September, head of state meeting on the margins of the UN General Assembly. And December, also potentially head of state level, where recommendations will be presented. Hey, uh, they show that the phrase build back better is code for their globalist socialism. Overview of global economic impact of pandemic, impact on sustainability goals, and opportunity to build back better. Then what follows is interesting, I think. It's a list of how the lockdowns have destroyed the world economy. Now, this was a private briefing note put together by Canadian civil servants for Trudeau about the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset, and they were saying that the devastation of the lockdowns, the lockdowns, was the reason they needed the Great Reset to build back better. But the thing is, Trudeau refuses to acknowledge that his lockdowns had that devastation. They caused that devastation. He never considered it. He never tried to avoid it. He still refuses to acknowledge it. He still is locking down our country in ways no foreign country does. Let me read what the civil servants told him in private. The global economic impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic are significant, driven by widespread social distancing and shutdowns affecting global activity in most industries, supply chain disruptions, reduced labor demand, lighter financial conditions, and lower commodity prices. Oh, so that's only acknowledged as an excuse to seize power and hand it over to foreign oligarchs, not as a reason to free our country from the lockdowns. Then this briefing note to Trudeau talks about multilateral organizations. That's just another way of saying groups with different people in it. But what's weird here is that they're private groups, crony capitalists, oligarchs. They're not even government groups like the United Nations. Who put Klaus Schwab in charge of anything? Who put Prince Charles in charge of anything? Let me read. Multilateral organizations. Sustainable Markets Initiative launched by His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, at the Forum's 2020 annual meeting in Davos. The Sustainable Markets Initiative aims to develop principles to underpin markets that are inclusive, equitable, green, and profitable. 
and that will generate long-term value for society, striking a balance among natural, social, human, and financial capital. Who died and made Prince Charles king? Not just king, but king of the entire socioeconomic system. With COVID-19 having forced a reset of the global agenda, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales and Professor Schwab of the World Economic Forum have partnered on the Great Reset to take advantage of a narrow but critical window to think about building back better. World Economic Forum COVID-19 related activities, recent Canadian engagement in COVID-19 related forum initiatives include the Deputy Prime Minister's participation in the May 6th COVID Action Platform, a regular discussion hosted by Professor Schwab and Forum President Borg Brenda, among leaders from government, business, and civil society. And Minister Champagne, that's the Foreign Minister at the time, participation on April 25th, along with Canada's Chief Trade Commissioner, in a virtual Sunday salon hosted by the Forum's Young Global Leaders Community. So like I say, it's not Canada's parliament where you have people from all walks of life represented, where you vote for your MPs, where you have all parties represented, where you have a public record of everything said. Here you have a corporation called the World Economic Forum with its Saturday salon, where these things are decided and and senior Canadian ministers and bureaucrats are participating in, in secret. And you weren't invited. Now, Trudeau loves this stuff. There are no truckers allowed at these get-togethers. There is no media allowed at the World Economic Forum other than state media or obedient media or official media. There's no opposition, certainly. There's no conservatives, certainly. He loves it. So Trudeau really didn't need any advice from bureaucrats on what to say. But the bureaucrats wrote notes for him anyway, so I'll read it to you. Launch of the World Economic Forum, HRH, His Royal Highness Initiative, The Great Reset, June 3rd, suggested talking points. Here they are. Now, I'm not going to read all of them. Some of them are pretty trite. But look at the ones that have some meaning to them. Recovery will look different based on local and regional circumstances, but in all contexts, we must seize the moment to address longstanding socioeconomic challenges and position ourselves to meet the ambitious objectives outlined in the Agenda 2020 and renew the focus on advancing the Sustainable Development Goals. So a globalist takeover of the economy using COVID as the excuse. This will require a high level of international cooperation and goodwill. We must make a joint commitment to act in ways that enable open, rules-based, and responsible trade and investment, sustainable economic recovery and growth that is broadly shared, inclusive societies that encourage gender equality and accountable global institutions that are effectively led, responsive to shifting dynamics, and that can set the conditions for constructive global action. Now, there's a lot of BS in there. There's a lot of buzzwords in there. It's typical Trudeau. But there are some code words in there that mean something. It's socialism mainly, but it's also completely anti-democratic. You'll notice there is never any mention of citizens or sovereignty or courts of appeal. Of course not. Trudeau can't wait to spend Canadians' tax dollars on his foreign friends, especially corrupt dictatorships. I mean, let me read this. In all efforts, we'll need to be mindful of the unique challenges to liquidity and financial stability that some countries face, 
including those with deteriorating debt positions, lack the reserve cushion to withstand a temporary but possibly pronounced economic impact from COVID-19. It is clear that this singular event will result in a prolonged financial crisis for many countries, notably least developed and small island developing states. There are a range of measures that can be taken, including enhancing external finance, such as remittances and foreign direct investment, which will be crucial to support economies as they recover from the impact of COVID-19. And if you doubt that he meant it, just yesterday, Trudeau threw away a quarter of a billion dollars fighting food inflation in Rwanda. No such relief here in Canada. I'll read more. These are the talking points written for him. These solutions will need to include new actions, policies, and investments that shift the world onto a sustainable and resilient path, foster good governance, inclusion, respect for human rights, and gender equality, protect vulnerable groups, mitigate economic loss, and support resilience. Now, some of that sounds innocuous, but I can assure you it is not. It's political, it's globalist, it benefits insiders and the ultra-rich oligarchs who have loved the pandemic and the lockdowns, who've become rich off it. It benefits those who love control. Here's some more. As the global community undertakes immediate and long-term support for, for confronting this global health crisis that has caused an economic crisis, there is an opportunity to take into account our shared priority of tackling climate change and to think about how we can support our economies grow back better. In this respect, we can leverage the growing body of work on sustainable finance, which I know the World Economic Forum has been active on. Who wrote this speech for Trudeau? I mean, he didn't write it himself. Of course, we see it as written for him. Was it written by the World Economic Forum? Could have been. Or by their penetrating agent in Canada, Christian Freeland? I won't read anymore. I, I feel dumber with every sentence I read from a Trudeau speech. Let me hop around to another part of this memo because its headline is so spot on. This is the very first page of this 34-page document. World Economic Forum Great Reset Dialogue. And here's a sentence explaining what it's all about. It's a note to the Prime Minister. You have been invited by the World Economic Forum to participate in the Great Reset Dialogue for the first time. The Great Reset Dialogues are a new series of virtual discussion initiated by the World Economic Forum, which focus on rebuilding the socioeconomic foundations of the post-COVID context in a fairer, more sustainable, and resilient manner. I, I could read the next 34 pages to you, but there's too much. And yet it's actually not enough. This memo, written in 2020 for Trudeau, didn't yet get into the real globalist agenda for COVID-19. Here's Klaus Schwab's deputy, Yuval Noah Harari, talking about the real value of the lockdowns, the real purpose of COVID-19. Take a look. And COVID is critical because this is what convinces people to accept, to legitimize total biometric surveillance. If we want to stop this epidemic, we need not just to monitor people, we need to monitor what's happening under their skin. What we have seen so far, it's corporations and governments collecting data about where we go, who we meet, what movies we watch. The next phase is the surveillance going under our skin. 
we now see mass surveillance systems established even in democratic countries, which previously rejected them. And we also see a change in the nature of surveillance. Previously, surveillance was mainly above the skin. Now it's going under the skin. Governments want to know not just where we go or who we meet, above all, they want to know what is happening under our skin. What's our body temperature? What's our blood pressure? What, what is our medical condition? Yeah, they don't show Trudeau those parts, or at least they didn't back in 2020. Christian Freeland is the one who knows all the deeper plans. She's literally on the board of the World Economic Forum, not Trudeau. So yeah, like I say, is it a conspiracy theory? No, it is not. But it is, is it a conspiracy? Well, it's absolutely it is. They're conspiring. They're planning. They're planning at the World Economic Forum. They're pl planning in the Canadian government. It's encouraging that 20% of Canadians know about all this. And it's telling that the liberals are so desperate to stop you from knowing about it, too. You can read the whole document on our website. Stay with us. More ahead. Welcome back. Well, I want to tell you, and those of you who've been following since the Sun News Network days know this, when we started Rebel News, we really didn't know if we could make a go of it because we didn't have the corporate benefactor that we had at Sun News. As you may know, that was owned by Quebec or one of the wealthiest media companies in Canada. We were just on our own. But if you don't know this, let me tell you, the inspiration for our leap of faith was our next guest because Anne McElhenney and Fella McAleer Two independent filmmakers in the liberal hotspot of Hollywood crowdfunded more than $2 million an independent film. They did it through crowdfunding. It was a record at that point of time. And I thought, if they can crowdfund that, we can crowdfund a fraction of that. It gave me the courage to leap. And we've hmm. kept in touch with Anne and Phelan ever since. I've been a fan of them. For years, going back to their great movie, Frack Nation, which also inspired me to write my book on fracking called Groundswell. They have other amazing movies and plays. They did the spoken word uh, productions of FBI Lovebirds, for those of you who know the story of uh, James Comey's uh, troops. They're working on the Hunter Biden movie right now. So many good things. But today we're going to talk to Anne McElhenney about a podcast series that they've got out right now. And I'm very happy that Anne is joining us via Skype from the Hollywood area. And great to see you again. It's just amazing what you and Phelan and your small team have managed to accomplish in the past decade. And I want to let you know, it absolutely gave us the encouragement that we could do it too. Thank you so much. That's a, I, I never kind of realized that, but thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's funny when you... You re yeah, when you ask people, look, we've got this idea, we'd like to make a movie, you know, in the case when it started with Gosnell, and people turned up, you know, $2.3 million in the end that we raised for that movie. It's, it, it's fabulous, you know, and it's, it's inspiring, and, it, and it, uh, it proves something, you know. It mm -hmm. proves that there's a gap in the market, that there are people who are, you know, are hungry for the truth, yeah. and they're not getting it in the places that they should have, you know, the institutions that they had previously trusted have let them down very badly. Yeah. Now, remind our viewers, especially our Canadian viewers, <laughs> which is the bulk of our audience, who Kermit Gosnell is, because 
he may well be America's most prolific serial killer, but I put it to you that not one in a hundred people would know that if he were a notorious, you know, shooter or, you know, Jack the Ripper. But because his profession was abortion doctor, and, and we're, we're not calling an abortion a mass killing here. We're, we're doing Correct. something very different. Can you explain to our viewers who Kermit Gosnell is and why he is more properly called? And in fact, the criminal courts did find that he was a mass murderer. Yeah. yeah, so he, you know, he's an abortion doctor and I, I, very correctly, as you point out, what was important in the trial. So he, what he did was instead of doing legal abortions, which are horrific in their own right, but no, what this guy did was he delivered babies alive and cut their necks with scissors. And he did this over 40 years. So the grand jury said he, he killed thousands, probably thousands and thousands of children. And that's what makes him the biggest serial killer in American history and hasn't gotten the attention it should have gotten because of the, the thorny subject of abortion, which of course couldn't be more prescient than it is right now with the decision yeah. from the United States Supreme Court in the Roe v. Wade case, yeah. you know, the Dobbs case, the Mississippi Dobbs case, which has overturned Roe v. Wade effectively and brought the decision about abortion back to the states, back to the people to decide, which is where it should have been. But this guy, Kermit Gosnell, extraordinary. And as you say, to this day, there's still a lot of people who haven't heard of him. And that's why we've decided to make this podcast, this six series, six episode true crime podcast, telling this story, this true crime story. I mean, I love true crime. A lot of people love true crime. And it's like, if you, you know, you want a true crime case, this is an unbelievable one. You have a guy here who was discovered only because he was doing illegal drug sales. So that's what that's what brought him to the attention of the authorities. And when they went to this uh, this clinic that he ran, they walked in to what they described afterwards as a house of horrors. There was literally the smell was like a wall that they could and, they, and we interview all of these investigators in the in the podcast. And it's it's quite an extraordinary story. They walk in, there's this extraordinary smell and because they're cops, they recognize it and it's the smell of death. It's the smell of rotting flesh. Oh. He has these bodies piled up in the, you know, in the, in the basement. And he, and, 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 I, I, it's an extraordinary story. And this guy was getting away with murder, murder, which was decided in the courts in Philadelphia. Yeah. He went, he's yeah. actually serving three life sentences for what he did. They took him, you know, they took him to court on the, on the basis of these three particular cases that were very, very clear cut, where there was a lot of, a lot of very, very obvious evidence uh, against him and witnesses who saw the deaths of these children who were born alive and oh. then had their necks cut with scissors. Oh. Extraordinary. You know, I have such a hard time hearing this. And it, I know. And it shows what a weakling I am. I can't even hear it. Imagine no. being uh, involved with it, trapped in it. Uh, and his victims were disproportionately African-American and low-income people. And that yeah, that's kind of an interesting. That in itself is a very interesting point, you know, because you know, you, you know, you might listen to this case and think, oh my God, that's something that happened, you know, in some backwater or some other century. No, this is this century, in Pennsylvania, very, very progressive Pennsylvania, um, where, by the way, the politicians of progressive Pennsylvania would claim to really care about minorities, to really care about refugees. And we know from this case, from the investigation of this case, the two women, Samika Shaw, a young African-American mother, and Karnamaya Monger, a refugee, died after botched abortions at that clinic. Um, and no one from the Department of Health in, in Harrisburg went to investigate. Kind of an amazing thing. So this, it, it really speaks a lot to the abortion issue and to what a sacred thing it is 
for progressives and leftists, that they would actually endanger women and children in, in order to protect it. And that's exactly what happened in this yeah. case. Um, and there is absolutely no reason why we wouldn't believe that this wouldn't be happening in other parts of the country. Yeah. So it's really, it's an incredibly important case. You know, I find it this so uh, such a heavy topic, but for those who have the stomach for it, for those who find how crime and the law come together, a six part podcast is the thing for you. The website is serialkillerpod.com. And again, it's not for everyone's taste. I myself, frankly, am having a little bit of difficulty even in this conversation. But for well, those, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things I would say is that um, a lot of the podcast talks to the investigators, talks to these incredible people, really inspiring people, you know, people like, you know, people from the DA's office, Detective Jim Wood, this incredible cop, really inspiring, fun guy as well. You know, Steve Doherty from the Drug Administration. There's a, there's a really fabulous array of people, actually, in the story that make the bad stuff actually put it into kind of a, um, a different light. Yeah, fascinating and terrifying and so obvious why you and Felham and your team had to fill the gap because this is a film that no one in Hollywood would make. Um, That's right. They wouldn't want to talk about it. They wouldn't want to acknowledge it. To acknowledge it would pierce their own sense of who they are, that uh, abortions are safe, legal and rare and done only in, you know, but this, these again, I say again, these weren't even abortions. These were babies yes. that were birthed, babies that were born and then murdered. And it's such a it's the most horrific case I've ever heard. And uh, by the way, and, it, you know, to mention as well for people, another aspect of the case that's really important and that we highlight in the in the six part series is, you know, if anyone's listening to this and has not heard of Kermit Gosnell, that should also, you know, ch be chilling be yeah. scary actually because it tells you a lot about the media this story yeah. for all its horror is a story that's important and needs yeah. to be known because of what it tells us about yeah. public health what it tells yeah. us about the abortion industry in the united states and the fact that it was covered up is is very yeah. disturbing and it's not helpful to anybody yeah and there's this classic photo of a section in the courthouse roped off for journalists and it was empty and just yeah. just so absolutely telling of how the media party, as I call it, is just as partisan on this as politicians are. Well, let's shift to from the horrific to the merely comedic and criminal. And of course, I'm talking about Hunter Biden, uh, President Joe Biden's son. Now, you uh, I mentioned that earlier. The movie is called My Son Hunter. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that, because last we spoke, I think we were talking to Vellum. And he mentioned that you got some amazing talent uh, as actors. And that's the thing. If you think it's hard to be a filmmaker in Hollywood who is freedom-oriented or not leftist, imagine how hard it is to be an actual actor. I mean, yes. talk about being blacklisted. Uh, tell us some of the real stars who you got to work with you on the Hunter Biden story. Yeah, and we shot the movie in Serbia back in November, October, November of last year. And it's just, we've just finished editing. We have Gina Carano, the great Gina Carano, you know, who people will know from the Mandalorian series, who was dropped by Disney for basically for, for being, just being conservative. We have Robert Davi is the director. I mean, great Robert Davi, who's been in just everything, Bond, villain, you know, the day, he's been, he's been in every movie you've ever heard of. Um, and we also have Lawrence Fox in the title role playing 
uh, Hunter Biden. And he's absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, as I think what's really great about this movie and the movie's coming out very soon. So we will have more news on that very, very soon. I honestly will. We'll get back to you very soon about that because the movie needs to come out. People need to know the truth about the Bidens, the truth about the corruption at the center of this family. I mean, you know, as Irish people, you know, we often say, like, we can't make jokes about people who are alcoholic or addicted. We can't. We just have too much of that going on. We, 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 invent, we almost invented it in Ireland and exported it around the world. So we're not making a film to, you know, to be disparaging about Hunter Biden's addiction issues. We are, though, pointing out his addiction issues and asking the question, really. The movie asks the question, why, oh, why would anyone want a guy as addicted as this and in such a bad shape as this guy? to be on the board of an energy company earning $83,000 a month for five years. Yeah. Um, why would the Chinese be giving this guy hundreds of thousands of dollars and giving him a diamond ring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Why would the mayor of Moscow's wife be handing over $3.5 million to this drug-addicted guy? Yeah. You know, we, yeah, and by the way, People are not stupid. I mean, I, you know, I, you, you and I, 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 I don't know in your case, but in my case, I'm often looking for donations from people. I'm saying to people, look, we're running a charity here. We're, we're a journalistic outfit and we're, we're, we're dependent on the kindness of strangers. You know, I don't get that many really yeah. large checks yeah. from people, you know? Yeah. So it's not like it's a thing that happens to people. I, yeah. your, listen, your audience are regular folk. You know, have they been handed a check for $100,000 anytime recently? You know, it doesn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, people aren't stupid. And when they do hand you over a $100,000 check, yeah. you know, they're going to get something for it. And yeah. in this case, we know what they got for it. They did get value for yeah. money. Yeah. Um, you know, and people aren't, you know, and so that's, the film is very, I mean, it's, it's really beautifully shot. Robert is an artist. Um, as you say, we had these incredible people in, in the show. Um, so, yeah, it's coming at you soon. It's, it's, it's great. It's really great. Well, and Lawrence Fox, I, when you told me, when Film told me that he was the star, I thought, oh, my God, he almost looks like him. Yes. And he's got that style. He's sort of thin yes. and, and yes. a little bit, uh, he, he looks a little rough. I mean, I, I really yes. like Lawrence yes. Fox, but he's, he's perfectly uh, cast. So let me ask you this. You say you filmed it uh, last fall. You're mm -hmm. finishing up the editing of it now. Yes. Now, we talked about, you know, being blacklisted in Hollywood and stories that are blackballed. How do you plan or have you finished your plan? I'm sure you have. How do you plan on taking this video to the world? Do you plan to release it in theaters? You're going to release it online. Is it possible that you'd get a streaming deal with? I mean, there's some very left wing progressive Hillary Clinton ish movies <laughs> on Netflix or yes, HBO yes. Max or whatever. What, what are your plans? Um, we can't, we, uh, again, I can't, I can't share our plans just yet, but basically this film will be available for everyone oh, um, very, very soon. And, uh, yeah. And, well, and, I can and hardly what's really wait. Important, yeah. What's really important to us is getting it everywhere. Um, and it, it will be online. I can say that for sure, yeah. but it'll definitely be online. Um, for, you know, because it's, it's, it's too important, right. um, a story that was never covered properly. The New York Post had, you know, did an amazing job, should have won a Pulitzer Prize for what they mm -hmm. revealed. And that story was suppressed by big tech, by big, by big media. Um, 
and and it's in a, and it's a travesty and it's kind of scary by the way because i think it's it, i think it's almost unprecedented in american history that the story of that import yeah. was suppressed in advance of an election when the information in you know that was available from the laptop was so significant was so important and no one you know it's interesting nobody from the biden side has ever denied yeah. any of the stories that have come right. from that laptop yeah incredible well there you have it our friend ann McElhenney, part of the dynamic duo her and Phelan, who produced so many unique films and theatrical productions this is called serialkillerpod.com and it's about kermit gosnell and boy, did you ever give us uh, some excitement about your next project too, the Hunter <laughs> Biden movie. And good luck. Keep it up. I'm I'm blown away by your productivity and your output <laughs> and the fact that you, you managed to do it independently. And I say again, yeah. that is the role model for us up here. So I'm so, so glad you went okay. first. Take care, my friend. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, officer. Oh, it's our pleasure. All right. Stay with us. Your letters to me are next. everybody. Well, the week has come to an end. What a busy week. You know, I, I want to tell you that since the no-fly list has been lifted in Canada, at least domestically, we're going to start moving around a bit more. Uh, Drea Humphrey is off to Halifax to do some reporting there. In the United States, we're moving around too, that we were never subject to a no-fly list. Um, we were covering the border, as you saw, between Texas and Arizona. Very interesting. We think there's going to be some riots tonight over the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on abortion. Uh, we'll have people where we expect the Antifa types to be burning in mostly peaceful riots. We're also planning a trip overseas, and I'm not shy to tell you that it is probably the largest world conference about the other side of the story for COVID medicine. It's going to be held in Brazil. We're sending a journalist there. It's basically a meeting of all the dissident doctors, the ones who said we should at least try other remedies. Should we at least test ivermectin? Is there a way of fixing this without simply buying the Pfizer vaccine? We are going to cover that very, very long journey for us to get all the way, not just to Sao Paulo, but into the Brazilian interior where this large global conference will be held. You might know that Brazil is an interesting country when it comes to COVID. The president, Jair Bolsonaro, is a real dissident, a contrarian on the subject. So I'm excited to tell you that rebels are going to be taking wing again. For the longest time, we were really frozen in place. Uh, as you know, we, we sent six journalists to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, uh, a month ago, but all six of them were not Canadians because our Canadians weren't allowed to fly. But I expect that we'll be covering news in faraway places now that we can, even though there are still some limits on us. That's one of my updates for you. Very exciting times. I'll wish you a good weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. Mary Ugolini with Rebel News. I'm here downtown Toronto at the Canadian COVID Care Alliance conference called the Citizens Hearing, and it is being moderated by former CBC journalist, scientific journalist, Trish Woods, who I have joining me here now. Can you give us just a little bit of context what uh, you thought throughout the COVID, you know, as the COVID 
hit yeah. with people, key players like Tony Fauci. Yeah, and how, how much things have changed, right? So so I, many decades ago, it doesn't matter how many, but <laughs> but I, I was the uh, science and medicine reporter for As It Happens. We won a bunch of awards for our work because we were covering uh, HIV and AIDS, which was also being mismanaged by Tony Fauci, who as a result of that, I have limited respect for. And we did a lot of pretty critical, as one does if one's doing journalism, coverage of what was happening during that particular crisis around the virus, right? So, so what's interesting to me now is, and I say this a lot, is that the coverage we did then of Fauci and his management of AIDS, I could not do that today around COVID-19, right? So, so the counter narrative, as, as it was called back then too, we were questioning all kinds of things that the NIH was doing. We were reporting very deeply on the, uh, the they were called people with AIDS, the ACT UP activists who were chaining themselves to the NIH with Fauci as a killer and you know, all that stuff on. And they had a point, what they were saying frequently was true. They were really well-educated gay men who knew a lot about the science and about the virus and put forward lots of policy changes that actually saved their lives against things that Tony Fauci was advising them to do. That kind of coverage of uh, public health and a public health bureaucrat back then was not only encouraged, it was celebrated. And I see not anything really at all like that now on COVID-19. And I don't understand what's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, with well, a- that was my question for you is why do you think that that is? If you could speculate at all or s- see the way that the mainstream media is uh, acted mm-hmm. or conducted themselves over the last two years, can you make sense of, of any of it? You know, I can't make sense of it. And um, it's been, this has been a really traumatic time for me actually to watch how this is playing out. Here at the at the hearings, we heard this morning three doctors say that when they're trying to treat COVID patients or do something that's kind of off narrative, um, what they get back are these repeated mantras, right? You can't argue about the vaccine because it's safe and effective. Uh, as journalists, people, and I know this to be true because I've heard it from people in legacy media, that if they want to do anything that criticizes or questions or uh, might bring up a debate around vaccine safety or efficacy, they're, they're told they can't do it because they, it might make people vaccine hesitant. I, like, I, that is not what news reporting is about. If there are issues with the vaccine, let's have a debate. Let's look at both sides. Let's look at the data that's now occurring more and more more that suggests that um, the efficacy side of it is sliding away pretty quickly. It doesn't prevent transmission. We know that. So one has to say, where, why are there mandates then? And the safety part too is that there's all kinds of bad safety signals right now. And yet you're not hearing that in the legacy media. And I cannot answer the question why. Do you think that the Trudeau media bailouts have anything to do with it or any conflicts of interest with big pharma sponsors and donors and funders? It may have, but I think that the the kind of the demise of legacy media happened before this. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with collective groupthink and political ideology. Good Morning America is brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer. Hmm. 
Um, and that's all I'll say about that. Because I, I, I don't know that for sure, but I don't have a rational explanation for people who are doing irrational things at a time of crisis and what is being done around COVID-19, both in a public policy sense and in a sense of covering it by the legacy media who are supposed to hold the government accountable mm -hmm. and ask hard questions, is it's irrational that they're not doing that. So I, I don't have answers. I think history will tell us maybe in, in uh, 10 or 15 years what went so terribly wrong here. And I know we're on a strict time crunch because, like I said, Trish Woods is uh, moderating the event tonight, today. So you have to head back in there. But just in closing, yeah. if you have any friends or connections still in the legacy media, are there any good people left? Do we have any hope to get some coverage, at least starting within the mainstream, as more data and science starts to evolve and come out? Someone really smart said to me the other day that a change in legacy media is going to be generational, that it's going to be 10 years for this crop to die out and a new crop to come in who might see things a little bit differently. And they may see things differently because the kind of thinking that's driving media right now is so disastrous for us as a, as a culture and as a democracy too. Or we need to bring some out of retirement to come back and provide some <laughs> counter narrative. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, but they wouldn't have me, right? I'm persona non grata on this stuff because they don't, they don't do the counter narrative kind of reporting right now. So, mm -hmm. I mean, when I go back, they're probably not anyway, but they do need people who think differently than they do. Mm -hmm. And to get out of the Zoom room. Get out of the Zoom room, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. Okay, uh, nice to meet you. You as well. For Rebel News in Toronto, Ontario, I'm Tamara Ugolini.